0: The school bell just rang, friends, and it's time to head to the classroom. Now don't worry, it won't be for a grade, but I do hope you pay close attention because we have an extremely interesting guest on this week's program by the name of Bart White. Now Bart is actually one of my former professors from the School of Journalism and Broadcasting at Western Kentucky University. He is enjoying a well-deserved retirement these days, at least from teaching, but he enjoyed a highly successful career, not only in college instruction, but he also did some radio broadcasting and even a little bit of acting. So he's gonna detail this extensive background and the highlights of his journey. He will also offer some words of wisdom that we could all live by in some form or fashion. So load up the boat, it's time for Blabbing in the Bluegrass, Episode 10 of Season 3. Come on! Kentucky features so much more than basketball and horses. We're home to scenic spectacles and one-of-a-kind golf courses. If boating, fishing, dining, or music is your pleasure, we'll guide you to the sights and sounds that you will truly treasure. Because we're Blabbing, we're blabbing, blabbing in, in the, the Bluegrass. Grass with a fit for every taste, precious time is not to waste. From Falmouth to Philpot, Frankfurt to Franklin, nothing fits the Commonwealth more like a glove than blabbing in the bluegrass. Exploration and celebration of all things Kentucky. From our first-class, five-star facility here at the North Quail Motel in Henderson, Ky, to your devices. We're so glad you're here. I'm Sam Moore, and we're going to have a big old barrel of fun today because, as you know, if you've listened to the show for any extensive time frame, I do enjoy featuring exceptional educators now and then, and they don't come much more exceptional than today's guest, Mr. Bart White, who actually taught four of my broadcasting classes when I was a student at Western Kentucky University. And uh, over the course of the interview... We will also, from time to time, mention other teachers who were in the department at the time, like Janine Sherry, who actually still teaches in the School of Journalism and Broadcasting. Also, Steve White, who used to teach with BART. No relation. Uh, They did collaborate on a number of projects through the years, too. Plus, Marjorie Yamber, who was the faculty head of the student-run station at Western while I was there. So you'll hear us mention those names on occasion throughout the uh, interview, but I know that you'll enjoy it. Now, before we get to Bart, I have another Bluegrass Brain Buster. We try to do one of these every week. We'll have the answer at the end of the show, and I know my timing's a little off on this one, but I can't resist doing a Mother's Day-centric question. I'll try to have a Mother's Day question, actually, on Mother's Day next year, but... You know, Mother's Day was first declared a national holiday in 1914, in large part thanks to the efforts of Anna Jarvis from Grafton, West Virginia. However, Anna was not the first person to advocate for Mother's Day as a national holiday. So I want to know which inspiring Kentuckian organized the first notable celebration exclusively devoted to Mama and was ultimately instrumental in the establishment of Mother's Day as a national holiday. Again, which inspiring Kentuckian organized the first notable celebration exclusively devoted to Mama and was ultimately instrumental in the establishment of Mother's Day as a national holiday? You think on that? Consult your lifelines and we will have the answer in the program's final segment. Good luck. Bladen in the Bluegrass proudly presents an exceptional educator. Today, our exceptional educator is a former teacher of mine from the School of Journalism and Broadcasting at Western Kentucky University. He uh, has been retired for several years now, but I thought we'd dive into his uh, educational background and radio broadcasting and other things that uh, he's dabbled in through the years because uh, as I think you will see he is quite a well rounded individual. So uh, let's welcome in the one and
1: only Mr. Bart White. Thank you very much, Sam. <laughs> appreciate being on Blabbing with the Bluegrass. I always enjoy blabbing.
0: Well, you and me both, so <laughs> that's why I thought we'd uh, make a good duo for the next little bit here. Now, how long have you been retired, sir?
1: I think it's been about five years now. I did what they call the optional program. Once I fully retired, they actually hired me back to teach uh, the introduction to broadcasting course for five years. And I did that uh, for that period of time. And then they asked me to leave permanently.
0: We're glad that you've come and decided to graciously join us today. Now your desire to work in radio and ultimately teach radio was uh, undoubtedly uh, fueled by your time spent listening to it as a youngster. So why don't you, Bart, tell us about your fondest memories of radio in the Denver area when you were uh, living there and growing up there as a child.
1: Yeah, when when I was young in an elementary school and junior high school, of course, that was way back in the 1950s when radio was really the thing. That was what we listened to. We didn't have social media, of course. No. And we only had radio and three network television stations. And uh, when you were a young kid, you listened to radio. You had it in the car. You had your own radio at home. In fact, uh, when you got a, a portable radio for Christmas, that was one of my best presents ever. You could carry that with you, a transistor radio, they called it. And, uh, that was terrific and the, the you know the music of the 1950s was kind of um uh, you know the patty page kind of music and i still like her but she's not rock and roll you know rock and roll came in in the mid 50s i guess when did rock and roll come in and in the 1950 1956
0: um yeah that sounds about what, right i remember alan freed coined that phrase well, he taught me that i think
1: of <laughs> alan freed was one that coined the phrase you know rock and roll sure and of course he was famous for hosting uh, live music performances in the New York City area and uh, they became extremely popular and he called it rock and roll and of course the term caught on and in Denver the station that we listened to was Kim Radio K-I-M-N and they were top 40 radio and ever since I heard the top 40 radio songs on Kim uh, I wanted to be a guy who played them you know in other words the DJ right. I don't know what learned the term DJ or disc jockey, but it sounded to me like that would be something I'd love to do is be on the radio and play these great songs and talk to everybody out there and have a good time. And and that's what kind of uh, gave me the inspiration to, to pursue this. Uh, but of course, it was always kind of in the background. Sure, I would, The DJs were obviously a little bit older. I was young. And what we'd like to do sometimes was go down to the actual radio station. They'd really let you in down there. And you could look at the DJ through the glass window, and they were giving away records on the air in contests called Name It and Claim It. And if you were the fifth or sixth caller and you named the song, you could claim the 45 they had to give away. And I was always on the phone dialing into these programs trying to win these records, and I did win two or three of them, and then you got to go down to the station to pick them up in person. And that's when you could see the DJ behind the glass window. And sure. I saw all those controls and the microphones and thought, wow, that would be a great job. I'd love to do that someday. Oh. <laughs> and kind of at the back of my mind. And uh, then, you know, life went on and you get out of high school and you go to college and there's no broadcasting majors. There wasn't uh, back was, then, was there? No. Yeah, it was a concentrated major that they didn't offer until later on. And um, so I, I majored in English right <laughs> uh, why not you know you can talk and write and major in English and and um, when I got to college there wasn't really any such thing as campus radio or college radio like you were used to when you were a student right and so I went down to the local um, radio station in Salem Oregon I went to college in Oregon oh yeah Willamette uh you, Willamette you call it or That's Willamette okay my best. well-known private school and <laughs> Um, It's right across the street from the state capitol. So I went over to KSLM and asked them if they'd like to uh, work with me in producing a university program once a week for an hour. Uh, And they seemed uh, to like the idea. Now at that time, I didn't know they had a public service requirement and that this would qualify for their time. And so they let me run a program every Wednesday night from 8.30 to 9.30. And that's how I kind of got started. Uh, they just gave me a microphone and said, go for it. And I interviewed campus celebrities and local politicians and talked about the issues of the day and things that's like neat. that. So in other words, I created my own internship.
0: Back on Denver Radio, I'll t- I tell you, one, one station that I've caught perusing the AM dial, even here in Henderson once in a while um, out of Denver, is KOA. Was KOA around back when you were growing up in Denver?
1: Yeah, KOA was the, was the top station in town in all the ratings. It's an adult-oriented station. Uh, it plays uh, basically adult, easy-listening type music. And they had a show in the early morning that was extremely popular, hosted by a man by the name of Pete Smythe. Pete Smythe. And Pete Smythe uh, ran a radio program called East Tin Cup. In other words, he broadcasts live from East Tin Cup. Now, I thought that was a little town in the mountains which he made it out to be and every time you heard a bell jingle he put one of those bells on the door someone would open the door the bell would jingle and in comes one of the old timers that lived in the town well pete did all these voices you know he was a he was a master imitator so the illusion was created that he was living with all these characters in the little town of east tin cup colorado Mm -hmm. and they'd come in and, and just sit around the you know the uh, the old iron stove and talk about what was going on that day and he did all the voices himself but it sounded like he was with the whole cadre of personalities so and a bunch of people that was there, entertaining right? even even to me as a kid but my parents loved it the old folks loved it and uh, i can hear the jingle in my head even today about pete smith's general store in east tin cup colorado koa did all the uh professional radio broadcast for sports as well they had the contract with the denver bears which was the uh, AAA triple a affiliate of the new york yankees Did not who in the fifth were winning all the world series ah. so if you go to a denver bears game you saw all the big name new york yankee players coming through denver so that was great long KOA, before the colorado rockies <laughs> yeah and then and well that rockies weren't around then but the denver broncos were oh, they yeah. were a fledgling new nfl afl team and um, they had the contract for them. So they had the sports contracts and they had the adult audience at the time. And so they, um, that was the flagship station. Still doing very well because it's always been programmed well. It's always sure. had a big budget that they could compete in the Denver radio market. And, and it was an adult station. The kids really didn't listen to KOA. But there was a competing station called KLZ. And they had a new frequency that uh, people started hearing about back in the early 60s, Sam, called FM radio.
0: Oh, which we're quite familiar with now. <laughs> See,
1: all this was AM radio in the 50s. Oh, there was sure. no FM. Well, we all know the history of that, you know, from taking my 185 class or whatever. Yes, you know, I remember FM, your intro that,
0: class quite well.
1: Yeah, that was that Armstrong's uh, technology, which was far better than AM. But um, there was never a big investment made in FM radio because too much money had been poured into the success of AM. And so FM didn't get the budget. It didn't get the frequency from the FCC, but people didn't program it because not all radios had FM. Car radios only had AM. Portable transistor radios only had AM. FM was just brand new and it was a difficult time getting started. But what really jump-started FM was rock and roll programming. The first station in Denver that did that was when KLZ AM, the big competitor to KOA, KLZ opened up their FM frequency and programmed nothing but rock and roll in stereo. Mm. That's all it took. (laughs) I remember the name of the first (laughs) DJ I listened to was Odie Cloney.
0: Odie Cloney.
1: And Odie played rock and roll radio in stereo on KLZ FM. And that was all it took for people in my age group to really start grooving on rock and roll radio because it was now in stereo. And our folks, my my household had a big stereo that was fairly brand new. And the first thing I did when I got home from school was to turn it on, full stereo on KLZ FM.
0: Much to the the dismay of your parents.
1: (laughs) Drove everybody nuts except for me. Uh, and so FM slowly creeped in, but I think was made successful by the advent of FM. Now, this didn't happen just in Denver. It happened nationwide right. with all the F frequencies beginning to program rock and roll. So rock and roll came uh, into full fruition on FM radio, where AM radio still played you know the old adult contemporary songs sure. uh, with a not very good high fidelity and not the superior sound that FM offers. And that's why I think they eventually changed over to talk and sports because you don't need FM high fidelity when you're doing talk.
0: On an interesting side note here, Bart, uh, you once told our class about a fellow Willamette uh, student of yours who was totally blind like myself and he managed to hitchhike clear across the country. So why don't you tell us what you remember most about this ambitious gentleman and, Share with us some of the stories that maybe you recall hearing from uh, his incredible journey.
1: Well, I never really followed up on him afterwards because he gave himself that adventure as a graduation present. So when we graduated in 1967, I lost touch with him, as you do with most of your classmates. Sure. Except for the really close ones in your fraternity or something. Um, But uh, he did do that. He was Uh, very self-sufficient, and like you, he looked at blindness as not a disability, but as something to be overcome, and he led a normal life and and graduated in four years, just like the rest of us, and the stories that I remember most about him is his room in the dormitory that we were in, the residence hall, was a popular room for all of us to go in and hang out and have your bull sessions that would last until who knows when.
0: (laughs) I can imagine.
1: what we used to do with him is finally when we, one person or other would say, look, you know, I got to go study. I got an exam tomorrow. I got to get out of here. Time for us to leave. Okay, everybody agreed that they would leave. And so all of us would point or, you know, look around the room and we'd end up pointing at one person and we knew what that meant. All of us would leave the room and tell Jeff good night. That one person we pointed at would stay in the room.
0: <laughs> so whoever very, was point of that stay. Very
1: quietly. <laughs> so everybody would leave and say, Good night, Jeff, shut the door, and they just sit there being really, really quiet. Well, you know what we had in mind. As soon <laughs> as Jeff got on. his books together and started studying, when things got really, really quiet, that person, and oftentimes it was me, would jump up behind him and go, Yeah! <laughs> hey, <laughs> what we mean? and try to scare that living daylights out of him. Oh, but I bet the that Jordan got was, out of him. He, he, he caught on real quickly. And he could, <laughs> you, you could tell him, you could see him turning his head around, trying to, to sense something, to take in a, either a smell or a sound or something. And he had his cane right next to him. Oh, God. And as yeah. soon as he figured out that there was somebody in there, he'd pick that cane up and he'd start swinging it.
0: Oh, that's hilarious.
1: And I'll tell you, several of us got some welts out of that. <laughs> you got some he chased us you? out of the room with that cane. Oh, that's funny. And yeah. that was always fun to try to pull one over on him. Uh, oh,
0: gosh, yeah. But, um,
1: <laughs> and his, and, his, and I, so one of the guys in the dorm would always do this to him. They'd They'd be in while we were talking. They'd get into his sock drawer. And switch his socks around.
0: Oh, that's he, funny!
1: I mean, he had somebody who would help him put all his socks together. You know, different colors and different whatever patterns, yeah. and they'd mix them all up. So that when he put his socks on in the morning, he'd have different color socks. Socks, <laughs> little Max. things like that. But but he always went along with it. He was a good student, you know. And uh, we would always help him out as much as possible.
0: Sure. You know, after
1: <laughs> you know, get around campus and, and through the food lines in the cafeterias, that, that kind of thing. Rock. So we were all friends with him, and he knew that. We just liked teasing him, and, and yeah, uh, I mean, he was good-natured about it.
0: After you pranked him, you always helped him, so.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> That's cool stuff. I remember you telling me that, uh, you know, he was planning on taking this trip, and uh, y'all asked him, you know, well, what made you want to do that, or why would you want to do thing? So? and he said, because I've never seen the country.
1: That's exactly what his response was. <laughs> and he, as far as I know from talking to other people, that he made the trip just fine. Um, those were the days, too, when you could still hitchhike without really worrying too much about, you know, a Michael Myers from Halloween picking you up or something. Right. <laughs> um, or Freddie. It was
0: risky then?
1: You know, <laughs> Freddie from Friday the 13th finding you on the side of the road and picking you up. in his pick up i mean it was pretty safe to hitchhike back then and a lot of people did it um and so he did fine of course when people could tell he was blind they were probably overly eager to help him out
0: sure yeah and i know they described uh, the scenery and stuff and all these different places yeah exactly exactly so (laughs) that made it fun too i'm sure now uh, (laughs) upon your return to denver after college graduation. Uh, you dominated the local airwaves on the city's then top-rated country station. So uh, tell us how exactly you landed this gig, and what did you enjoy most about your time on well, Denver That was a,
1: such a great experience. It's, it's K-Y-G-O are the call letters today. Kygo. Earlier it was K-L-A-K in the time, but they changed the call letters when they changed ownership but it still it comes out to be the number one station overall in Denver many, many years. And it was the top station. And you may have heard the expression, luck is when preparedness meets opportunity.
0: Yeah, you well, were the first one I heard say that, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was lucky to get that job. Here I am in a major market. I mean, I, even though I grew up in Denver, the graduate program that I was interested in was offered by the University of Denver. I got admitted to the, to the University of Denver. And so that summer, I thought, well, I'm going to have to earn some money here. And I, was, I was fortunate at that time. They had an agency in town that placed radio and television people. Mm. It was a radio and television uh, talent agency, I guess. That's neat. So I went down there. I didn't, have to, I didn't go around to individual stations. I went to this agency. And I said, I'm interested in, in radio. And um, I had an audition tape that I'd made with an old cassette recorder, believe it or not. Those and, were nice. I uh, had
0: one though back in the day. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> and and so they listened to it and they said, "Oh well, okay, yeah, uh, I guess okay, we can put this on file." Well, it so happened that right at the time I was there, the e- early evening radio announcer at KLAK was fired, and they oh. were looking for an immediate replacement. And I think it was the next day that agency called me and said, you were in here yesterday. I think I've got something that you might be interested in. And so they said, go down and talk to Ed Scott at KLAK Radio off Hamden Avenue in Denver. And I thought, wow, that's the top station in town. This is fortuitous. So. I went down there and I'd known, known the name of Ed Scott because he ran a kid's show in Denver. And I think it was KOA TV, NBC. And so I thought, well, man, that's, that's probably the same guy. And it was. And I went in one afternoon and talked to him. And um, here's where the preparedness meets opportunity. Uh-huh. He said, I need an announcer to start tomorrow afternoon to do the seven at night till midnight show. Mm. And the agency said that you're pretty good, although you don't have a lot of experience. Um, what, you know, we just had the regular interview. And I said, well, I have an audition tape here. Would you like to listen to it? He said, no, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you do the show today. And I'll go home and listen to it. Mm-hmm. And if I think you're doing okay, come back and talk to me in the morning tomorrow. Ah. Pressure. Have you heard yeah. of Pressure before?
0: Uh, once he or let twice, me go yes. on the
1: air before he hired me. <laughs> and, so, he, yeah. so you
0: did a shift before you were
1: hired. And he said, I will listen to you on the air. I don't want to listen to an audition tape. I want to hear what you can do on the air. Mm. And so I went in there and I met the, the announcers that were on the air. I remember a, a man named Glenn Owen. He owned an advertising agency in town and and was a a part-timer who did a couple hours like between five and seven right and i went in there and he understood the situation i was in after i talked to him and he was the nicest most generous guy he said i'll tell you what i'm gonna do i'll stay here during your shift and i'll work the board because he could tell i was looking at this gigantic board with all these bells and whistles and buttons and knobs and microphones, and network, we were network radio ABC. Oh, yeah. It was like, holy crap, I'll never, I'll never work this. I don't know how to work this. He said, I'll do all the controls. All you do is the announcing of the, the records, you know, the songs, intro, the outro. gentleman he was. <laughs> Whether, whatever a DJ would normally do, I'll let you do it. Uh, wow. I thought, wow, thank you so much. And so all I had to do, he was basically my radio engineer.
0: From now,
1: Denver was a major market, but it didn't, it wasn't unionized. So sure. we didn't have engineers that played all of your songs and put all the cartridges in and did everything like New York or Chicago or LA. Sure. And they were all union. And I think they might still be where announcers couldn't touch a record, you know, and Denver had no unions that I knew of. And we'd spun our, cued our own records and put our own commercials in cart machines and all that he did all that for me and all I had to do was the announcing and that made it much easier for me to get through that evening and I did get through the evening you know pretty well and a little shaky of course Um,
0: well that's to be expected but
1: (laughs) yeah and so uh, I went in the next morning to uh, Ed Scott's office and he looked at me and said well you know you you weren't so polished as I had hoped but I think that you'll do uh, we're gonna hire you Basically
0: awesome.
1: <laughs> I thought, "Oh wow, I can't believe this.
0: How about that?: And
1: so I also told him I mean, he also told me that don't look at this as a permanent thing." He said, "You can do seven to 12, but I'll tell you what. You also can you do fill-ins for me." I said, "I'm available whenever you need me." In other words, I was able to be uh, flexible. I said, "I'll work. If somebody's sick or your overnight guy can't come in, call me." And That's that was awesome. the arrangement we had. He, he could always count on me. I'd call in and I, he'd call me at the last minute and I'd fill in for shifts and, and work overnights and do all those kinds of things. And so that's I worked neat. there until I resigned and I, it worked out very well. What a great experience that was. I, that's the, my, some of my best memories today were sitting in that control booth in that big market thinking, wow, I don't know how I got here, but I'm loving it.
0: That's awesome. That is a perfect example of preparedness meets opportunity. Now you don't you don't happen to have any of your old air checks from back
1: then. do you No, I don't. In I fact: say, I that'd remember,
0: be great if you did.:
1: I remember meeting with the program director who would go over air checks with us and this this was a motivator. His name was Bob Payne. Bob Payne. And he'd sit down and he would listen to my tapes. And he had a philosophy, and here was his philosophy, for every second of dead air that I hear in your air check, you will be fined a dollar.
0: A dollar per second, Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> so he would listen to your, and so you learned very quickly, you don't have dead air. There's no such thing as dead air. You know, you segue from you know song to commercial, to weather, to news, to song, to promo, to song, you know, boom de boom di boom. You keep up a pattern, bomba di bomba di bomb. And I think I was running really a rock and roll format. What I call a rock and roll format on a country station. This was a country music station. Right. I didn't mention that earlier. That's why it was number one. Country music was becoming extremely popular at the time. You know, and they're still writing the charts in many radio markets today.
0: Oh yeah. Country
1: radio has exploded. You know that through country music TV and through the ACM awards and. Absolutely. And whatever, Nashville, uh, it was fabulous. I mean, it was country music was at its apex back then. It's Zenith. And I jumped in right in the middle of it. And, and I kept that radio show going just like I'm talking to you now, Sam. I'd keep that thing going. There was no such thing as dead air. No seconds. Boom, boomity boom, boom, boom. Barely a brass. Here's, here's the weather. You know, how's everybody doing today? Great day in Mile High City. Boom. I mean, you keep it going.
0: Oh, god. You have
1: high energy. And I kept that up. And that was good because that kept, but kept me a job. I mean, you did oh, yeah. high energy stuff.
0: Absolutely. At least I did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: but you. I, I believe it. Now, how long were you at Chicago exactly?
1: No, that yeah. Still, it was KLAK then. But oh, that's I right, was there yeah. until I graduated from the University of Denver, uh, which was uh, uh, 1969. So I stayed with them, you know, through that summer until I got a. My first job in education, which, of course, is what I was, was gearing for, was a graduate degree in student affairs and education, and uh, I didn't stick with radio. I probably should have, but I resigned from the station in order to take a, a job at Lawrence University in Wisconsin, where I ended up getting a weekend radio show at a rock station called WNRR, and so I was able to be a rock jock on weekends, so I always kept... My finger in radio a little bit. Ah,
0: so and uh, in the way. that
1: segued into uh, another job. That was only a one year job. And then I went to uh, Jacksonville, Illinois, near Springfield, in the Springfield market, um, at a station called WJIL when I went down to work at McMurray College. And um, eventually I decided I'm going to go full time in radio. And that's when I got back into full time in. Uh, Basically, a market about the size of, uh, of Bowling Green. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's when I really started working full time. You know, I started on the air. And then I found out there was such a thing as sales, <laughs>
0: <laughs> which I, I had you for that class. I can't remember. 385, I think, was the number.
1: It was 385. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think anybody comes into college preparing uh, to go into sales as a profession. It's right. a time-honored profession, and where would any business be without a sales staff? Sales you know, generates and runs the economy. Oh, sure. Um, but I wanted to be a star. I wanted to be on the radio. I wanted to be a superstar, you know? Sure. Radio was in my blood. I wanted to be an announcer. But my manager told me that I was going to go into sales. I had no choice. Either I go into sales or I leave the station.
0: <laughs> so you did as so you were told. I
1: <laughs> said, I'll try it. <laughs> and pretty soon I found out that, you know, I can make a lot more money selling media advertising than I ever can behind the microphone. Uh-huh. And that sort of, sort of segued into a full-time position of selling radio uh, throughout central Illinois. And um, I did that for almost 10 years. Ended up a station manager at the end before I came to Western. So you know, radio is a business. I found that out, and oh, yeah. without revenue flowing in, you have nobody else has a job.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Now, what was uh, what was WJIL's format at the time?
1: Country. I oh, it was a country station. <laughs> yeah, it was country. That was the AM country actually, and AM was still riding high. You know, FM was uh, just coming into the market really, in the early seventies.
0: Now, uh, you ultimately ended up in the Mighty BG at Western Kentucky University. So, of course, like you said, no, no social media at the time, no job boards. So how, how did you find out about the opportunity at Western?
1: Well, they were advertising for a person with uh, at least 10 years professional experience, not just doing part-time weekend radio, but at what they called a high level. And, of course, uh, I had been... Uh, on the street as an outside salesperson for a decade, almost. And I was the station manager. So I would consider that probably high level. And I had an advanced degree and that's what they wanted was a a minimum of a master's degree and 10 years experience because professional schools like uh, WKU had at the time, you know, the broadcast curriculum, which morphed into the school of journalism. Um, They were looking for people with uh, degrees as well as experience, Uh Uh, and I fit the bill. I saw it advertised in broadcasting and cable magazine, and on a whim, just sent a letter of inquiry to uh, the department head, who was a man by the name of uh, Dr. Randy Capps at the time.
0: I've heard that name.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think he's still there teaching part-time grad courses in education. But anyway, uh, one thing led to another and they called me and I wasn't all that interested because I knew I was making more money than they'd probably offer. Mm -hmm. Um, But they didn't call me for an interview and Carol and I went down there, uh, drove to Bowling Green for an interview. And they told me later that they, after they interviewed me, they wanted me right away because I had more experience than anybody else who applied for the position or that? that they brought in. And, um, but they had to wait till everybody was interviewed and the committee had to meet and then they offered me the job and it was about, I don't know, five or $6,000 less than I was currently making at the radio station. So I wasn't interested at first. So (laughs) I turned them down.
0: (laughs) It was an initial no, huh?
1: (laughs) Yeah. And they called back and said, listen, you ought to reconsider this because there was a benefit package available that I didn't have at the station. Ah. And in the meantime, Carol, who has a graduate degree in student affairs and counseling, a job opened at Western in the career services office. Hmm. So independently of me, she sent her credentials in and they called her and said, we're interested in you. Can you come talk to us? So we did that and they liked her. And they offered her a job. And we thought, I can't believe this. This is a fortuitous thing. We both have job offers at the same university with a benefit package, which means, you know, benefits, health insurance, a, a pension program. Indeed. Uh, yeah, and we thought, well, we don't have any of that at, where we are in Illinois. Uh-huh. And Carol was working in Illinois as a social worker at the housing authority, which paid her nothing. so she got a raise and i thought well this kind of evens out i'm making less money you're making more money we both have benefits
0: so this looks like
1: (laughs) something we ought to do and so we both said yes we will come to bowling green kentucky (laughs)
0: yeah i guess that was a fair trade off wasn't it
1: (laughs) yeah it was it was but besides See, this was a new program at Western. They had, they had not, nobody had ever taught a sales course before. They just developed it in the curriculum. They were Mm -hmm. smart enough to develop a standalone sales course and a standalone management course, which no other university in the state offered. So that made them unique. They had a true broadcasting program where they not only taught like advanced radio and basic radio and all the basics in television production and all of that, but they were offering sales. They were offering management. They were developing a radio station for the students. You know, it was a carrier current, but they were getting that on the air. They had a TV studio that had been operating for a couple of years. They were building a model broadcasting program. And so I was in on the ground floor. So they hired other like people like me that had a lot of experience. And that was the beginning, the genesis of our broadcasting program.
0: So you were one of the early birds, shall we say? now, one uh, of the
1: early birds, right.
0: Now you let's see, you started at Western in '79, correct? Correct. Yeah, that's what I thought. So back in the '80s, Bart, you were instrumental in launching Western's first ever student-run station known as New Rock 92. Uh, walk us through, if you would, the the, the steps you took to get New Rock 92 off the ground, and talk about some of the enhancements that were made to the station under your supervision.
1: Yeah, well, well, I I really came on as faculty advisor. All the hard work and the paperwork to the FCC was done by Dr. Charles or Chuck Anderson, who was a a media services director and later on vice president for uh, technology at Western. Um, and he was the one that, um, he's, a, he's an engineer in his own right, and he did all the paperwork filing for the FCC to get our initial license, which was licensed as a carrier current station. If you know what that is, it's a, it's a signal that goes through the electrical wiring of the university, and you can only pick the station up by plugging a radio into your outlet in the dorm, and the signal comes through electrical wiring. And sometimes you can pick it up in a hallway of a building if you're lucky. It doesn't really transmit uh, an RF radio wave, so to speak, a carrier wave.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: just works electrically through the through the main station, the uh, the main electrical system of the university. And it was a it was uh, you could pick it up on your AM dial. And that's what we started with. We had a control room um, in, in uh, on campus there at. Uh, where the TV station is now. Uh, What's that building? Why can't I think of it?
0: Academic complex.
1: Yeah, thank you, the AC. (laughs) (laughs) It was a little studio there. And, but we had students going in there that were in the advanced radio course, which I was teaching. And I think I started off teaching the basic radio course. And then we hired somebody to teach that. And then I moved into advanced radio. Yeah, and I had we Janine
0: Sperry for BASIC.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, Janine is excellent. She is a graduate of the program and then worked professionally at WKYUFM. She was a news anchor for several years there before coming over to teach for us. But um, we were Carrier Current was nothing. You know, we didn't really have an audience and, and uh, we could sell advertising, but that was a tough sell. Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, our audience was very limited. You know, it wasn't like real radio. We had a real studio and everything was set up like a real radio station. But if you don't have a carrier current, a radio wave going out, you kind of know you're not real radio. So everybody wanted an FM signal. Well, Chuck Anderson, being the genius he is, applied to the FCC for an open frequency. And uh, we were assigned that frequency, 91.7 on the uh, educational dial 88 to 92 is set aside for educational purposes you know right on the fm dial and so we got a license at 91.7 and after everything was said and done that launched in and i was there for the initial broadcast we had the same studio basically it was now just fm and we weren't called new rock 92 that was uh something that the students came up with when we had our first student uh, staff put together and they decided awesome. they needed to have a handle and they thought well that sounds good we're going to play new rock meaning not the same rock and roll that top 40 stations play but the emerging music that uh is not really popular yet but still considered rock and roll yeah that and coming <laughs> and college radio that was college radio other stations around the country were doing the same thing we were all getting into the new sound of college radio and that was New Rock, and so we called it New Rock '92, and we had a legitimate FM signal. Gosh, what was it? About a hundred watts?
0: I can't oh, remember. Watts back
1: then. <laughs> but yeah, that's what it started out—a hundred watts. We've got more now. I can't remember how many. Yeah, I think it's watt- about
0: fifteen. It was at least when I was there. It was about fifteen hundred, and um, I think they said since the. Uh, since the transmitter was on top of the water tower, I think they said it was about like 3,000.
1: Yeah, that's right. It started out at 100 and we were pleased with that, but we wanted an upgrade and, and Dr. Anderson got us the upgrade and pretty soon we were able to send a signal out probably about 15 miles into the community at least, because so you know, the FM tower works by line of sight transmission. And so, yeah, well, you could pick it up driving around town in your car and out of town too for several miles. So yeah that was that was real radio now we were competing with the big boys and and um ever since then it's been uh, very very popular now the problem now is i don't know if it's a problem people when we first staffed the station you had to be in my advanced radio class to be on the air uh-huh you know you had to go through the major it was a it was a laboratory for majors it wasn't for everybody like if you were a biology major you couldn't run a radio program because you're not in our program. Exactly. Well, when we decided to go 24 hours, that changed the landscape. Yeah. Cause we were only on the air from six in the morning until midnight when we were first a hundred Watts uh-huh. and we could staff that through advanced radio and the staff that was running the station and maybe a few basic radio people that were pretty good. So, you know, we were able to do it, but when we went 24 hours, then we had to open it up to the campus community, which we did, and yeah. that's when we brought in a new faculty advisor. That's when we brought in Dr. Yamber.
0: Oh, that's did when she ever... came along. Yes, I had it yeah, for one we, course.
1: Yeah, when we went to uh, 24 hours, she was able to open it up to the general campus community because we, that's the only way you could staff at 24 Exactly. I don't know if they're still 24 today. I think they're automated a lot of the time now.
0: I think so but, too. I think they're still on 24/7, but they might not be live all the time.
1: Yeah, and I guess the programming is still kind of new new rock music uh yeah, whatever I'd, but kind of progressive. Yeah, yeah, progressive I guess you'd call it, but uh so there was an evolution there from AM carrier current and and really no audience to FM 100 watts to FM you know, the 300 to 3 or 3000, whatever, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and it it was open only to our majors. And then we expanded it to the greater campus community. So, you know, our intention really was to have a a working laboratory to train people to leave that environment and go on to the so-called professional stations. And uh, Uh a lot of students have done that and done it successfully, or if they haven't done that, at least they had a really good time on college radio.
0: Now, uh, some of our listeners, Bart, may not know that uh, in addition to your teaching and your radio broadcasting, you've also done a little acting in your time. So uh, why don't you give us an overview of your experience in this capacity and tell us about uh, the most rewarding aspects of these acting roles you've had.
1: Well, I'm very little. I mean, this is really a very minor part of my background. <laughs> I mean, it's, I've done very, very little. Still... I've been very, very... <laughs> still interesting though (laughs) you have to pursue it almost full-time and you know I've done a few things here and there and uh, had an agent over the years and um, I spent a summer in Los Angeles uh, um, working uh, as an extra on several movies and doing commercials um, basically uh, as an extra a lot but I got some principal roles too but nothing really big nothing that really paid off it was just a lot of fun and a lot of experience uh uh, then uh that got segued into uh, some experience in nashville nashville has always been a a community of 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 entertainers and actors and kind of a center in the south for movie production not like atlanta atlanta is the capital of, of film production and major movies but nashville has its share of movie dollars flowing into the to the Tennessee Film Commission, and uh, um, I was able to go down there and do a couple of things, you know. I I, I was in a Jim Varney movie, if you remember who he was. Know what that I mean, Varney, Oh, yeah. I've kind of it. thing. <laughs> and, um, you know, our, and I basically worked, you know, doing extra work on a lot of different things, and that isn't any big deal, but it was fun. And, of course, uh, the students in our program who are interested in film um, decided to launch their own project. Uh, so a lot of our students have done film work outside of their graduation years. And, of course, Western's known for John Carpenter graduating from our, from prog- from our program, oh, yeah. uh, not particularly broadcasting. I, he might have been a music major. His dad was a music faculty member. But after he left Western, he decided if he's going to learn anything about film, he better go to Los Angeles, where the talent is. And that's where he went and penned the script for Halloween. And of course, everything else is history. Everybody knows about Halloween.
0: And uh, that's
1: how he made his first million. And of course, all the students know about that. And they did then. And they were all wanting to go into making movies. And so one of our graduates, Doug Robertson, he um, decided to put his money into a full-time feature film called Haunted Ween. Have you heard of that?
0: Haunted Ween. I think I've heard that name. I've not watched it. It's kind of
1: a cult movie that kids bring out around campus and around Bowling Green uh, at Halloween time. Uh, You can Google it and find out a little bit about it. It's a movie that's kind of in the horror genre that was filmed in and around Bowling Green area with Doug as the director. And um, me as a second unit director and me as one of the major characters playing the sheriff of the small town where all of the mayhem occurs. And so kids that are familiar with the movie who also were familiar with me used to watch that and give me a little bit of static for being in this movie. (laughs) which was really by hollywood standards a d minus production <laughs> uh, but it's become a cult favorite and compared to some things that are out now it really wasn't that bad um, oh. <laughs> but i'll have to try if, to get it, my hands on that <laughs> if you can if anybody can find a bootleg copy of it they they are around
0: <laughs> All uh, well.
1: they they are i think a couple of dvds have been pressed on it and it was be re- remastered and redone a little bit, the, the introduction well, to fit neat. a DVD format, but I know that the, you know the, the videotapes are out there around somewhere, but who's got a VHS machine anymore, but uh, anyway, I, I, I did that and, and the, the only thing I've done recently is appearing in the television the ABC show Nashville down in Nashville. Oh yeah, I watched so, a few
0: episodes of that.
1: Yeah, I I got to be in several of those episodes. Recognizable only in about three of them. (laughs) But still, still had a lot of fun, you know, being in a scene with Connie Britton once, but that was edited out. So anytime I got to be in a scene with the major actors, didn't seem to make the cutting room floor, but it was still fun to be on set and to be a part of it because that was a very successful production with very high ratings for ABC. Oh, and yeah. they had a beautiful soundstage down there in Nashville that they built the sets on and filmed everything there and throughout the community of Nashville and brought in millions of dollars in revenue for the economy. Because everybody oh, yeah. wanted to go to the Bluebird Cafe, which is yeah. where a lot of the stuff took place. Only they, that was on a soundstage. The real Bluebird, uh, you know, was book solid because of this show and still is actually. But Nashville's a great community, and they still have a lot of film work going on down there. But any work that I've ever done has been on the on a very low level, pretty much a background guy, pretty much minor work. Um, <laughs> but still, wow. a lot of fun, still to be fun to be involved in the industry at some level, that kind of thing. But oh yeah, you know if you're if you're into announcing and into voice work and entertainment, then you know you'll do anything just to. Just yeah. to get the experience. <laughs> Just for the experience, yeah. I and
0: mean, then every little bit counts. Now, speaking of Nashville, in addition to the, uh, the acting, you've, uh, you've voiced quite a few commercials in that market, haven't you?
1: Well, actually, mostly and a lot in Bowling Green. Uh, I did a lot for Steve White on I mean, his uh, White Stock Productions. He used to do a lot of stuff for General Motors and local commercials, and he knew that I was an easy mark for doing a voiceover for him. Because sure. he'd uh, buy me lunch or something, you know. Uh, so no, I haven't done as much voice work as I would like to do. But uh, I did, a, you know, just a few things on, on uh, the very local level, um, you know, local industrials, things like that that that, that aren't broadcast.
0: Yeah, if I remember, I remember hearing you on the Window World commercials when I was down there.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah i forgot about that <laughs> yeah i did i did a window world commercial on tv and i when cook's beer was a popular beer a gold bloom beer out of evansville indiana i did uh i did their tv commercials oh yeah and did. i still get static today from people who are now in their 50s who used to see me on tv hawking cook's beer which is no longer produced i I didn't. I guess you, my though. commercials put them out of business
0: (laughs) no (laughs) that's funny though that's (laughs) that's neat experience now needless to say um your agenda varies greatly now in comparison to your uh teaching day so tell tell our blabbers and bluegrass land what's keeping you busy at least halfway (laughs) since you retired from wku
1: well actually uh Retirement is is not all that it's cracked up to be. I, I've always played golf, but I've never played golf well. So I got a little bit into that, but I'm you know I'm i have kind of I'm not really doing that much anymore. I'm just not very good, and I've kept up my interest in watching golf, but I play it so poorly that I'm an infrequent uh, golfer. They put a close sign on the course whenever they see me drive up. So
0: <laughs> well, at least um, you tried. <laughs>
1: yeah, try so. Uh, one thing that I don't know if you know about me or my students know about me, but throughout the time I was at Western, my hobby was running, you know, that's how I warded off obesity and, and I got into the long distance running thing and um, actually have run 11 marathons and was half decent at it. And I, I basically every day before I, the day starts, I get up at five every morning, which I know is insane, but I can't sleep any later. <laughs> so i walk my dog and then i walk myself and and i used to run 10 miles a day and now i'm down to walking 3 to 5 miles every morning between 6 and 8 so when i get back you know my walk is in uh, i would do it when before the temperatures get too hot and and um that's kind of my hobby i'm still into into fitness as, as much as i can be awesome um but i don't have any you know i don't bird watch or do puzzles (laughs) or I probably watch more TV than I should. I I really am a fan of film. I love to watch movies, Um, uh, you know, being involved, you know, in a minor tangential way in the industry. um, I I enjoy watching films and seeing how they're put together. And and, uh, so I am a big fan of, of movies and appreciation of talent and how much hard work goes into it some of these productions you see on TV. I mean, when I was in Los Angeles, I did a commercial for Century Insurance.
0: Century and Insurance.
1: it started at eight in the morning and it ended at four or five in the afternoon. And you're thinking, oh. how can a 30 second commercial on television take all day? But it does. These directors are meticulous. We filmed that commercial 30 different times.
0: 30 takes, huh?
1: And maybe it was 35. Mm. And I was a customer that I had to go in and get a six-pack of beer out of the cooler and bring it up to the counter and present it to the cashier while the main actress in the commercial was having a dialogue with uh, another person. I mean, you know, it was all an ensemble kind of thing. And every time we'd do it, he would think, well, we can do it better. Mm -hmm. And so you see how much work goes into these things, how many takes it takes even to do one scene um, so uh, it, it's kind of tiring work you see oh, film no a scene a night scene i was in a production that had a, a scene at night and uh, people were running across the street Shelly long and Ryan O'Neill in a movie called irreconcilable differences back in the in the 80s and you know they they ran across the street 20 times it's like, and in the movie, it takes them, what, seven seconds to
0: <laughs> seven run into seconds.
1: this restaurant where I was sitting, you know, and right. it was like, and so, but you have, you have an appreciation for the work that goes in, you know, and I was able to do a principal part for a Hitachi commercial that ran in Japan.
0: Oh, neat. That's awesome. And yeah. so
1: I was the, I was the, the dad, a patriarch of a family that, in a big farmhouse out in wine country. And, And uh, we didn't have any dialogue, but we had to go through this, these motions over and over again until they feel they had it just right, you know? And so it it is tiring, but you appreciate the work that goes into even the smallest production. And today what I'm doing is I'm executive producer now of several films. And uh, there's a documentary available now that you can get on Netflix and it's on all cable systems if it's still there called um, The World's Most Dangerous Paper Route.
0: Mm, World's Um, Most Dangerous Paper Route.
1: Yeah, and that's the story of the Stars and Stripes newspaper, the newspaper that's still published today and delivered to all uh, military uh, camps and headquarters worldwide. And Uh so um, that's quite a story because it's delivered into war zones. That's why it's a dangerous paper route to have.
0: Oh, yes, um, exactly. And
1: it's narrated by the very well-known Steve Croft of CBS 60 Minutes. Oh, yeah, I know that name. Well, he's yeah. recently retired in the last two years, but he narrated our film, and oh. it's well worth watching. It's about an hour film. that gives you the history of the Stars and Stripes newspaper, how it's written, how it's delivered. We interview several reporters um, and, and how they're able to get their stories. And it's a full-fledged newspaper that still publishes today on a daily basis and delivered uh, to a military bases worldwide.
0: Well, that's um, cool.
1: That is available. still should be on Netflix and, again, on, on Spectrum Cable and all of them. If it's sure. still there, I hope so. Um, but I've, the company I work for is called Vanilla Fire Productions, It doesn't take a lot of time because the work I do is basically what I'm doing now in my office at home. Um, But I usually work as a producer for these companies, and um, a lot of that entails the financial footing of the project. But we have A-list actors who narrate our films. Steve Croft was A-list, of course, doing Paper Route. Um, Other people who have narrated our films that are basically military-oriented are Josh Brolin, if, uh, Academy Award winner, very well-known A-list actor, Ed Harris, Kelsey Grammer, Dan Aykroyd. Um, <laughs> we work with all of these people who narrate our films um, then, that are basically military-oriented and, uh, and available various retail outlets, I guess. But, but I produce a lot of these films, uh, which are patriotic films in nature. And awesome. that fills a little bit of my time, but not a whole lot, you know.
0: Yeah, I guess Basically, some interesting side work.
1: Yeah, that's interesting side work. So, so being involved uh, and the Vanilla Fire Productions. The reason I got involved with that is one of our graduates from 1984 is Steve Barber, and Steve is the CEO of this company, oh. and uh, he's based in uh, Santa Monica, Los Angeles, California.
0: Oh, out west
1: and has had a very successful documentary film production company for years we produce nothing but high quality documentary films narrated by a-list actors um and uh, he, basically he's gotten out of the documentary business lately and is the man who is producing statues of all of the apollo astronauts that you might see displayed at the houston space center or cape canaveral in florida
0: interesting um,
1: he works with the bronze uh with a team in Longmont, Colorado that makes all these bronze statues. And Mm -hmm. he's placing them in these various locations uh, to honor the Apollo missions and the Mercury astronauts initially. So uh, he's gotten away from the film production business. But uh, for a while, I was happy to work with them as a a producer with a very professional team of uh, Hollywood veterans who know how to handle a camera know how to budget and uh get these movies produced and get them distributed so there that was a that was a good experience for me oh I and absolutely i'm supporting one of our graduates
0: yes yeah, so it's going to a good cause and one of your former students and that's that's really neat too. So now uh, speaking of these documentaries that uh we've been talking about here off and on you've uh you've voiced a few documentaries haven't you
1: yeah, I believe so. I, you know, you know, that was <laughs> it's all
0: kind of a blur now,
1: isn't it? A lot of the Steve White stuff.
0: <laughs> a lot of the Steve White stuff back in the day. Yeah, <laughs> I might have yeah. to see if I can't uh, get my hands on some of that. Well, Bart, you've been great. We've sure enjoyed talking to you. Now, last but not least, before we uh, unbuckle your seatbelt here, what advice would you offer to uh, those in our audience wishing to become future broadcasters and/or instructors
1: well i would say you know get out of your chair get off the sofa get out of the house and go to where you want to work or where you want to find a job eventually like the way i my career worked out is i could have sat in the dorm and not gone down to kslm when i was a junior in college but i wanted to get into radio so i went down to the station and said look i would like to start a radio show would you help me put it together could you use that in your programming? And they said, yeah, let's work together. We'll make it happen. And I started working on the radio, no pay, of course, just getting experience. Uh-huh. So anybody can go, even you know, if you're a college student or even a high school student, find out where an internship program exists and get involved with it. You've got to get experience before you can get hired. You've got to have that experience because people hire experience, but everybody says, how do you get it? You get it by taking the initiative. So if you want to be a lawyer someday, you know, see if you can shadow, a, you know, a good local law firm. What what can you do? Can you be a courier for them? Can you carry briefs around? Can you go to the radio stations and carry their PR releases? Can you get to know what they do? Can you hang around for a summer job? What is there that you can do? Make yourself known. Say I'm interested. I want to be involved here. You know, if you want to be an auto mechanic, uh, find out what auto shop in town will allow you to kind of watch what the people do and maybe give you a wrench every once in a while. Just get involved. Um, (laughs) you, you. I mean, that's how you learned, I'm sure, right? Yeah, that's a lot of it. Yep, I did an
0: internship uh, between my junior and senior year and really enjoyed it uh, over at BKR. But, yep, you got to do whatever's necessary to get that experience. I heard, uh, I heard a story one time. Uh, Alan Jackson started as a, a mailman at the Nashville Network. <laughs>
1: Before- yeah, that's what you do. Like, if you want to be a producer, like I know a student, one of our students wanted to be on air at WBKO. And she, there was no slots available. She didn't have a lot of on-air experience. She only worked at, uh, at New Rock 92. And so what did she do? She took a job as a producer because every TV station in America needs producers. Oh yeah, You gotta produce the early morning show, the midday show, the noon show, the afternoon, whatever break-in you've got, the evening show, late night, depending on the size of the market, everybody needs a producer and they never have enough of them. You can always get in probably as a producer or get in as an assistant, find out how they, what they do, what their job entails. And then eventually uh, somebody was needed on a, on a weekend part-time anchor position and she'd been there for several years. And they said, well, okay, we'll give you a shot. And she started part-time on weekends, Segwayed wow. that into full-time on air several years later, boom. There you go.
0: <laughs> so you, you start history. out at
1: the lowest level you can. It doesn't matter what you do. Just you know, sweet, there's all kinds of success stories of people who have swept floors, you know. Oh,
0: and uh, like just it.
1: get in, get to know the people, and just, they'll get to know you and what you're good at and what your ambitions are, and they'll. Everybody will give you a shot. Will give you a chance. Everybody wants to help people out.
0: As long as you make the effort, and they see that you're trying hard.
1: Exactly. Well stated, Sam. That's exactly the secret (laughs) to getting out and launching your career. Nobody's going to come to you. Right. You've got to come to them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you've got to make it known (laughs) that you want it. So just get off, uh, get out of that house, and (laughs) do what you got to do. And before you
1: get out of the house, make your bed. (laughs) Make your bed, (laughs) yes. That's one thing the military teaches people. Before you do anything in the morning, make your bed. That's one accomplishment you can have before you leave the house that you can feel good about.
0: Exactly. So, you know, even if you don't accomplish anything else that day, you can say you made your bed.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Believe it or not, that is a a go-to military mantra. Start the day by making your bed.
0: Yeah, and then a lot of times everything else comes a little easier. Yeah, I don't
1: even do that today, you know. But uh,
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, it, it requires a few seconds, and you don't always have a few seconds. So Well, hey,
1: I'm retired, so I don't have to make my bed.
0: No, no, not a requirement, not at all. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on today, Bart. Hopefully we didn't torture you too badly.
1: Sam, you're doing great. We've always been proud of you and what you've been able to accomplish. You're an inspiration to many, many students, uh, not only with any kind of disability, but those people that uh, just want to start a career. And if anybody's listening, let's hope that this show helps them. But, but you are an inspiration. You're a go-getter. You're a never-say-die guy. You're, a, you're the kind of example that all students need. So we're all really proud of what you've been able to do. And you've got a bright future ahead, whatever that is, You're a go-getter.
0: Bart, you're too kind. And uh, (laughs) you're texting the mail, too. (laughs) 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 I need one. (laughs) Well, we sure appreciate it, sir. And we'll do this again sometime.
1: Anytime, Sam. Always enjoy talking with you.
0: Boy, do I ever have tons of fond memories from being in Bart White's classes. Not only did you learn a lot from them as long as you showed up on a regular basis, But he made class so much fun, and we always had a big time learning in there. I tell you, my classmates sure made it fun too. And between all of us, we certainly mixed the business with the pleasure, and that created a learning environment that was just so enjoyable. We looked forward to coming to Bart's class every day. At least I did, and I know I'm speaking for pretty much all my fellow classmates and those that came before us. And speaking of Bart, he told me off record that just this past weekend, he and his wife Carol celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. So that's nothing to sneeze at. They were going to attend a party this weekend thrown in their honor by a few of their friends at their house. So I hope they enjoyed it big time and partied down. Congratulations. Happy 50th wedding anniversary to Bart and Carol White. We wish you too many, many more, to say the least. And I sure appreciate Bart entertaining us with uh, all kinds of stories Throughout his impressive background on this episode of Blabbing in the Bluegrass, we'll definitely have to do that again in the not-too-distant future. And if you all would like to nominate a teacher for our next Exceptional Educator Spotlight, yeah, I know Bart's going to be hard to top, but we're all about giving teachers the credit and recognition that they so rightfully deserve. So send me those nominations via email. It's bluegrassblabbing.com at gmail.com, B-L-U-E-G-R-A-S-S, B-L-A-B-B-I-N, at gmail.com. You can also use that email address to make suggestions for future guests, future topics, possible directions for the show, questions, comments, vicious remarks, whatever you got, I'll hear you out. And you can also connect with me, via the Blabbin' in the Bluegrass Facebook page, which I encourage you to like and subscribe to. Why? Because all of my previous episodes are right there at your fingertips. You can catch any of them that you might have missed or just want to hear again. You can stay up to date with information as it is presented, frequent teasers about what's to come. You can, of course, make comments, leave messages, have all sorts of fun there. And I would also love for you to listen and subscribe without paying a dime, via Apple, Google Podcasts, and or Spotify. Those are definitely accessible outlets, and I would love nothing more than for you to utilize those as well. So, plenty of fun today. We'll try to top that, although I don't know how we're going to. Next week, I do want you to come on back, though, because it's never the same without you. Before we leave you this week, though, we have the answer to this week's Mother's Day-themed Bluegrass Brain Buster. And as I told you, Mother's Day first became an official holiday in 1914 nationally. And that was in large part thanks to the efforts of Miss Jarvis, Anna Jarvis of Grafton, West Virginia. However, she was not the first person to advocate for Mother's Day as a national holiday. That was the Kentuckian. And I wanted you to name this inspiring Kentuckian who organized the first notable celebration exclusively devoted to Mother, and was ultimately instrumental in the establishment of Mother's Day as a national holiday. She was Miss Mary Toll Mary Toll Sassine, who was actually a teacher here in my hometown of Henderson, Kentucky, she organized the first celebration devoted to Mama back in 1887. On April 20th of 1887, that was her mom's birthday and she was real close to Mama, thought very highly of her, and organized that celebration in her honor. Shortly thereafter, in 1893, Mary Tulsa Sassine published a 32-page pamphlet outlining her views for the holiday, and then years later, she would uh, go across the country advocating for Mother's Day, and uh, her efforts were successful in a handful of places. She got married, moved to Florida in 1904, and even after she retired from teaching due to poor health, she continued to campaign for Mother's Day through her death in 1908. She actually passed two days prior to her mama's birthday, and it was shortly after Anna Jarvis started uh, stomping for the event, shall we say, and so... uh, Mary Tulsa Scene uh, laid the groundwork for the holiday that would ultimately become Mother's Day, and I'm proud to say that she is from my hometown of Henderson, KY. Mary Tulsa Scene is the answer to your Brain Buster this week. We'll have another one next week, along with plenty more enlightening and fascinating conversation. It won't be the same without you, though, so come on back, and until then, you know what you got to do. Keep laughing, keep smiling, and most importantly, Keep blabbing in the bluegrass. Cause we're blabbing, blabbing, in the bluegrass. There's nothing here to hide, cause we're saying it with pride. Just a blabbing, blabbing, in the bluegrass. With knowledge of the state, you're sure to appreciate. Yes, we're blabbing, blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. Where musicians furnish talent and great whiskey Cools your palate just a black bit in the bluegrass With a fit for every taste, precious time is not to waste